The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So moving on, we have in the past couple months talked about craving as one of the three unwholesome roots and then more recently aversion as the second of the three unwholesome roots. And tonight we'll begin looking at delusion as one of the primary roots of disconnection, really. (laughs) The Buddha sets up this whole predicament being a human being we have this habit of disconnecting, misperceiving, and then our whole life unfolds from, instead of an alignment with things as they are, a, a misperception, a, what do you say, unalignment, disalignment? Not in alignment with things as they are. And all the consequences that flow from that. We know what this means. You know, when our bike is out of alignment, when our car is out of alignment, when our relationships are out of alignment, even when our mind is out of alignment, we didn't have our coffee or green tea in the morning, it just doesn't seem to work very well in life. And so this is, this is our predicament. Our mind, our view, is out of alignment. We've gotten in the habit of misperceiving, And then part of that habit of misperceiving is feeling a strong need for our experience to fit our idea, our interpretation. And we never really question the interpretation or the view that we have. So we're so busy massaging the data to fit the view, we never catch that we're massaging the data to fit the view, that we're misperceiving, that we're disconnected. And so always our strategy when we suffer, when life doesn't work, when we have enough clarity to realize that we're out of alignment, like the word dukkha or suffering, it actually comes from the term a wheel out of truth. So it really of a visceral image of, you know, being on a cart or a bike that has a wheel out of true. It just doesn't work. And so all of our work to address our life not working, being out of alignment, that it's always from this point of view, this particular view. We never take the, we never are inspired enough to check just to check whether the view is in alignment. So this will be what we'll be talking about for the next few weeks. This habit of living in the appearance of things, being always under the influence of what we're taking that moment to be. And not really having sort of mental muscle to connect or to see things 
free from our ongoing interpretation. You know, where does our ongoing interpretation come from? Well, we're passing this on generation by generation. Sort of our ancestral ignorance that we receive, maybe genetically, but certainly culturally, through our family of origins, through our friends, through the media. Being disconnected in this way, this is the primary definition of ignorance or delusion, is living in a way, connecting or uh, seeing or understanding in a way that's arising out of disconnection. And Bhante Gunaratana, this well-known Buddhist monk from Sri Lanka, I think almost 90 years old now, has written a number of books, one in uh, Mindfulness in Plain English. It's a really nice book if you're interested. And in that book he talks about how we have this tendency, you know, more than anything, a human being is this profoundly sensitive happening. The human mind, the human heart is profoundly sensitive. Now, often we live in ways that cover up that natural sensitivity. can't cover it up completely, but we can mask it or we can obscure it. So we do, because it's intense to be sensitive. So he says how there's this profound sensitivity, but very quickly the mind tends to fixate on one little bit of the full range of sensitivity. We connect with one particular thought, one particular moment of emotion, one particular visual image, and then what do we do? We concoct or construct a whole story around that based on the conditioning. And we fixate on that story, that idea, that interpretation. And in so doing, we become oblivious to everything else, to all of the other sense data, sense experience, moment by moment by moment. We're literally squeezing out our life. I mean, that's what our life is. Our life is this ongoing sensitivity. What is life if not being connected to the ongoing sensitivity of being alive? That's what it means to be alive, isn't it? To be sensitive. And then to respond appropriately to that sensitivity, to what we're sensitive to, to what's being known, what's being felt, what's being seen and heard. This is, you know, just, a, I think, an appropriate definition for life. But you know, we have these phrases now even, you know, like getting caught up. So we get caught up in thought and we become oblivious to this sensitivity. It's like we're not interested in the facts because, in a sense, there's an arrogant sense that the story sort of arrogantly assumes, I got it, I got it, I know it, you know, I know what's going on. And so we don't bother to connect. We don't connect to what we're feeling. We don't connect to what we're seeing 
we're not aware that our thoughts are just thoughts. Part of this delusion is the thought about what's happening substitutes for reality, that we don't distinguish a thought or an interpretation from reality. This is what we call being in a dream. I think it's a very useful metaphor, of course, one that's used quite often to describe our situation, you know, that we're living a waking dream in the sense of the projection of the mind, the projection of the thinking mind or the conceptual mind is taken for reality. So there's no ongoing mindful recognition of the basic data of the moment. A data, a, a sensitivity that's not under the influence of concepts, not confused by concepts. And it really points out in, the, in the, this whole path, it raises this issue about our allegiance. Are we living a life that's in allegiance to our concepts, our interpretations? Or are we cultivating an allegiance for this bare, raw, direct experiencing? Because what we learn and the consequences of these two allegiances, you know, they're dramatically different. If we live in allegiance to our thoughts about things, we're very much limited by those thoughts. And even if we have the thought that these thoughts are bad, you know, we're still in a bubble pretty much of our thoughts. The thoughts may change, but being in the bubble remains the same. But to the degree that we are inspired to uh, become in allegiance to this raw, direct, moment-to-moment experiencing, well, things begin to change dramatically because that awareness, that direct, raw, bare awareness of experiencing, what becomes so powerfully obvious is how ephemeral everything is how changing everything is, how impersonal everything is, how any kind of attachment or identification to experiencing is immediately tightness in the mind and heart. It immediately hurts. We're just so distracted by our you know, habits of getting identified with stuff, with ideas and thoughts. We don't notice how painful it is to be identified. We're so distracted by distractions, we don't realize we're distracted, we don't realize the consequences of being distracted. As my teacher, one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, says, you know, just because we don't realize we're suffering doesn't mean we're not suffering. So if if being distracted, being disconnected is stressful, is a kind of suffering, it makes sense, though, that we wouldn't know it. This is why Beginning to understand dukkha, stress, suffering, is a really powerful step in the right direction. Because all of a sudden, suffering or stress can wake us up. Like, what the heck's going on? What is the mind doing that is causing 
this weight, this frustration, this resistance, this difficulty? How is the mind participating in the arising of stress? But when we're in our story, one of the primary characteristics of our stories, our interpretations, our concepts, is that pain arises when something happens to me. So we're externalizing the causes for suffering. Something somebody did to us, the world that's happening to us, or even we externalize ourselves, like I did this to myself, but even that is like somehow different than me who's experiencing the pain. So it's always this sort of uh, dualistic subject-object point of view. The problem is always out there. It's like uh, one teacher said, uh, we move from trying to understand, figure out the problems the self has to understanding the problem the self is. The problem this dualistic notion is, this primary view that there's me and there's this world. So Jack Kornfield, then, in each of these chapters in his book, The Wise Heart, he articulates a particular principle of Buddhist psychology, the teachings of the Buddha. So in this chapter on delusion, he says, delusion misunderstands the world and forgets who we are. Delusion gives rise to all the unhealthy states. Free yourself and see with wisdom. Early on in the chapter, he says, without seeing clearly, we take the surface illusion of things to be reality. Delusion underlies all the unhealthy states. Grasping and clinging arise from the delusion of scarcity and inability to sense our wholeness and life's abundance. Right, so when we get into craving, See, we use craving to maintain delusion, to maintain disconnection. And we, you know, grasping reinforces the view that there's somebody who's lacking things. <coughs> now just think about how much of today, on one level or another, could be just in a very subtle level, like we're just lacking enough warmth, or we're lacking enough coolness, or we're lacking comfort in the body food in the belly, or we're lacking a sense of belonging. You know, we feel a little like we don't belong to the people we're around, don't connect with the people. So there's all these ongoing feelings of not having enough of something. And craving then feels so appropriate, feels so appropriate to crave what we feel we lack. And he goes on, he says, Aversion and hatred arise from the misguided search for security, from the mistaken belief that hatred can make us feel safer. So when we do feel uneasiness, when we do bump into insecurity, a sense of feeling of vulnerability, it makes so much sense from a particular point of view to be upset, to get angry. Because it makes us, in a funny way, it makes us feel powerful next to the experience of insecurity. When we get angry, when we get upset, when we have a hate, even like I hate life. You know, life is so 
out of control. I hate it. And it's like, you see what the mind, the sort of superficial or ignorant mind is doing, is it doesn't like the feeling of insecurity, so it constructs this unstable sense of security by hating insecurity. Like whatever it is, you may hate the insecurity in your relationship with your partner, or being vulnerable to your partner being you know, a limited human being. And we hate that, and it kind of creates a sense of security. Or, but you see, that security depends on that contraction in the mind. So we make this deal with the devil. Like, I'll get tight in order to feel safe. In other words, we're saying, I'll suffer in order to feel safe. But the safety is an illusion. It has to constantly be patched up, because it doesn't actually it is an actual safety. It's just the appearance of safety because the emotion that created the sense of safety is tight. When I feel tight, I feel real. I feel grounded in a funny, neurotic way. Is this making sense? So we have craving. That's one way we create tension that makes us feel real and kind of like, like we, we can deal with the sense of lack sense of not enough. We have hatred and aversion as a way to create this contracted sense of self where we feel real, maybe a little bit safer temporarily. And then he goes on and he says, and the root of delusion itself is the illusion of a separate limited self. And one, one way, just to bring this up, just to begin to reflect on this basic delusion of a separate self is just to ask ourselves right now, just to do a little reflection right now as we're just tuning in to this moment's experience. Do you experience what you're knowing right now? Do you experience it as just one thing or do you experience this moment as two things? Two things in the sense of there's me knowing this experience, with me knowing the world, or me being here. So, one or two. So, yeah, so we have this habit, this view, I would, this is my suggestion, um, coming from my own experience and from how the Buddha teaches, you know, our habit is to just, out of habit, our habit is to assume there are two things going on right now. There's me having this experience, me knowing the sights in the room, me knowing the body, me having thoughts, me thinking about going home later. But now let's just see if we can not be afraid of that view that there's me having an experience, but just be interested directly in you know, what it means to be awake or alive or connected right now to this mind-body thing happening. So whatever the moment is, whatever sensitivity there is, is it actually experiences two things? When you look, you'll see there's just this. It's never two things. Any moment of knowing, any moment of 
being connected to your life is experienced as this. It's not even like a mind in a body. It's just this. This is being known. Does that make sense? Can you at least conceptually get that sense? So our, just a sense of how our direct experiencing is different from our presumption of me having a life that's being known. Like there's two things. But our actual experience doesn't support that view. And if we can learn to live in this more direct way, that view will be completely teased out of the mind. Because it is completely dependent on not paying attention. The only thing that supports delusion, the only reason delusion continues, is because we're not paying attention to the way it is. We're confused by the projections of the sort of shape, the content of the thoughts, the concepts, to such a degree that we stop paying attention in a mindful way, in this clear, direct, non-judging way. This is from Bhante Gunaratana's book, Mindfulness in Plain English. He says, a close inspection reveals that we have done the same thing to me that we have done to other perceptions. We have taken a, floor, a flowing vortex of thought, feeling, and sensation, and we have solidified that into a mental construct. Then we have stuck a label onto it, me. And forever after, we treat it as if it were a static and enduring entity. And then a little later, he says, at the end of this chapter, Vipassana meditation is inherently experiential. It is not theoretical. In the practice of meditation, you become sensitive to the actual experience of living, to how things feel. You do not sit around developing subtle, and aesthetic thoughts about living, you live. Vipassana meditation, more than anything else, is learning to live. Joko Beck has such a powerful um, description of this. As, uh, she talks about building a superstructure, that we have this perfectly fine house with windows and you know, big sunny windows, open windows. And then, out of habit, we go ahead and build a superstructure, another house around the house we already have. Of course, then it starts to become very dank and dark in our house because we got the superstructure around it. And here's the real tragedy in all this is that there we are in a perfectly fine house, having built another house around it, the house of our concepts around this perfectly fine house experiencing it as dank and dark, so what do we do? We continue, we just neurotically feel like, my God, i got to keep building, you know? So we, we're patching up our house, we're patching up the superstructure, we're probably building a third one, fourth one, fifth one. We're just adding more layers because our house isn't working for us, even though it's perfectly fine. And the problem is that neurotic activity. And of course, if we just let 
you know, everything fall apart, it's fine. In this chapter, chapter 15 in this book, I know some of you are following along in the book, Jack Kornfield talks about three levels of delusion, inattention, denial, and misperception of reality. Now, we've talked about all three in, in, the, in what I've said thus far, but let's look at inattention a little bit more, and then in the following weeks, we'll look at denial and the misperception of reality in a little bit more depth. I was talking to somebody after an earlier talk. I think it was uh, Mark Berkson. He mentioned this book um, by a scientist, you know, who was saying a lot of the same things in our previous lives, you know, as human beings in more simple situation where we're living out in the wilds and there are predators. You know, our uh, focused attention you know, on danger made sense. You know, so if we heard a movement, if we heard the growl of a saber-toothed tiger, you know, it makes sense that we would, in a sense, stop paying attention in this broad way, and all of our senses would be narrowed to just like the sound of the tiger, maybe some scent. I don't know if human beings can smell tigers or not, but but basically whatever supported survival. And then, you know, through time, we became less of this being sort of surviving in this very survival based and this sort of simple like avoiding these threats to more of a psychological being. And the thing is that our thoughts about things are really the same as the direct experience. You know how that is. Like you can think about a breakup you had 25 years ago. And if you think clearly enough about that breakup, you're going to have a lot of the same feelings you had 25 years ago. So what we imagine, what we think about, can cause stress. We don't need the saber-toothed tiger to growl. All I have to do is think about death. You know, we can, because of our language, because of the sophistication of our minds, we can conceive, we can construct any possible danger. We can construct, what is that great quote from Mark Twain, you know, about dangers, you know, most of which never existed. Does anybody remember that quote? I know I'm not doing a good job even getting close to it, but... Yeah, yeah. How many of our great fears, I mean, the, the great things that we've panicked over weren't really true. I mean, just a simple example, I remember being in the middle of a three-month retreat, and the mind gets very sensitive, very powerful, actually, because it's like got all this energy, but no way, no place for the energy to go. So it's just sitting there waiting for a little crack, a little break in the mindfulness, and then... So if you have a particular thought like, I wonder what my wife's doing now, because <laughs> you haven't spoken to her in you know, six weeks or something like that. And then that can just lead to all kinds of things. And in three minutes, you can be very certain she's having an affair with exactly the person you'd least like her to have an affair with. 
And the thing is, the image, you know, whatever image you begin with, it evokes a certain feeling of tension in the body, right? And then that tension in the body goes, well, I wouldn't be having this tension if something weren't up. And so we concoct another thought to represent the tension in the body, right? And then that thought, that image, has a reflection in the body. You get tight again. And it's like an engine between the, the visceral tension and the production, the construction of a thought, and then the thought causing the visceral reaction in the body, which is the cause for the next projection of the thought. And this is how we create a panic attack, right? Or any kind of emotional crisis or just big storm. And basically, we're doing this all the time because now we trust more the images and thoughts we have about things than our direct experience. It's like, uh, it's easy listening to the news and talking with our friends. It's easy to be uptight about the kind of world we live in. I'm sure you've noticed that, at least at times. And so I was, before the program tonight, I just took, as I often do, a, a walk through Matthews Park. It's just a nice loop. Some, got some beautiful trees there. And people are often playing in the baseball field, soccer fields, and just kind of a nice, wholesome feeling. And the big sky as the sun was going down. And, uh, you know, it's like shocking when it occurs to the mind, oh, this is pretty pleasant. This is pretty peaceful. You know, because here I am, I'm in an urban center, uh, ur- urban setting, and, you know, this world is falling apart, if you haven't noticed. And politics are like this, and, you know, crises around the world are like this, and the economy is teetering on the edge like this, and... You know, my body is falling apart like this. And, but our actual, the actual experience of walking through the park wasn't anything like all of those thoughts. It was quite vast and spacious and peaceful and conducive of contentment. You know, it wasn't conducive of fear or anxiety or panic. And I bet if we checked, we'd find that most of the moments of our existence are conducive of peace, contentment, and happiness. But if we just let thinking do what it's conditioned to do, most of our thoughts would be conducive, not all, but most of our thoughts would be conducive of stress. And again, this might be somehow related, maybe it was adaptive at some point, like to think about whether there might be a tiger around that tree might have been conducive for a while. But after we've killed all the tigers, or most of them, you know, maybe that's not so useful now to be wondering about danger. So this is this uh, really has to do with the quality of attention. Like the way we become inattentive is the mind puts itself in a little bubble. Like when we drive home, and then later we realize, I don't remember driving home. I mean, I know I'm home. The car is out there. I must have driven home. Or, you know, you've eaten. Look, and the plate's empty. You know, the spaghetti's all gone. 
but you don't remember eating. It's like because you were absorbed into the newspaper or, you know, whatever, thinking. So we get in these bubbles, and then we, like I mentioned earlier, we lose connection. There's this inattention. So this is our homework for the next week, at least, to just notice these, the pattern of inattention or the times in your life where you discover you have been inattentive, disconnected. It's like part of your life is just missing. And then you can go back in hindsight, like, how did that happen? This is a neat thing about how the mind works. It is capable of basically going backwards with cause and effect. I'm sure you've done this sometimes. Like, how did I get here thinking about this? You know, and then you go, oh, I was thinking about that. Oh, yeah, and then be, and you go back, and you can figure out how you got there. And in the same way, we can see you know, how we disconnected and how being disconnected maintained itself. This is samsara. The cycles of suffering depend on the mind not catching that it's disconnected, that it's lost. There's some integrity to our distractions, our dramas. They maintain themselves. But the more we recognize that and the more we get a sense of how stressful that is for the mind to be in a bubble, the more the mind becomes appropriately inspired to not get lost, to maintain uh, mindfulness. Like the Buddha says in the Dhammapada, you know, uh, mindfulness is the path to the deathless, to freedom. Those who are negligent, those who get lost, are as if already dead. Right? So when we're lost in thought, in a sense, we're already dead. There's no learning. There's no possibility of insight when we're absorbed into one of our bubbles. And I'll just end by mentioning sort of the primary mechanism for that distraction, that inattentiveness. As I was thinking about this, I remembered uh, one of my brothers back in the early 70s. He was young, you know, five years younger than me. He was like perfect age when Star Wars came out to be totally enchanted by the whole phenomenon. I don't know if most of you are probably old enough to remember when Star Wars first came out. I'm not even sure when, but early 70s. And, and like his whole life was became about Star Wars. He knew the lines. You know, he studied everything, how they made the movie. He knew the mu- He had played the music all the time. It's like he lived in that world. And so this is, like, when something is pleasant, the mind craves it. So one of the mechanisms of inattention is, like, when, and you can notice this, like, when something is pleasant in your life, notice how the mind isolates reality on the pleasantness, disconnects from everything else, you know, basically obsesses with what's pleasant. And we get in a bubble. Of course, other people will notice we're in that bubble. Like, oh, he's just, you know, it's like some of you have friends, maybe who go in and out of relationships a lot. And you see how the new relationship, and all of a sudden, they can't function as a friend because they don't know how to show up for you. 
they only want you to listen to them talk about their new lover or something like that, or to listen to you complain, or listen to them complain about their lover or something like that. It's like, wow, you know, we lose that relationship. They're not a human being in a way when they're lost. Whatever it might be, some people it's with their jobs or obsession about politics or whatever it might be. The other mechanism for distraction, for getting in bubbles, is fear or aversion. You know, things that upset us and we get really focused. And it can be something trivial, like we have a hangnail, and the mind just gets completely obsessed about this hangnail. You know, where is a nail clipper when you need one? <laughs> you know, and all we can do is think about getting home and getting the nail clipper, or if we got something in our tooth, you know, getting home and getting a piece of floss. Or... Isn't that true, though? And it's like, uh, it's like we can't, and we'll pretend to show up, like we'll pretend to have a conversation with somebody, but we're really thinking about <laughs> that piece of popcorn in our tooth. <laughs> I catch myself with my wife doing this a lot. It's like, you know, and it's, you know, it's so painfully obvious. I mean, it's funny how, like, these little things become, can become so big when they're irritating. And we can't function as an integrated human being until we take care of this one thing. Especially us controlling types. You know, it's like, I've got to put this away, or... I've got to tell you what's upset me, you know, even though it may be the most trivial thing, like you didn't wash a coffee cup before I can sort of say, hello, how was your day? <laughs> you know, it's really nice to see you. No. <laughs> this, i got to mention this. So we can look for how the mind gets confused by pleasant experience, how the mind gets confused, gets in a little bubble with unpleasant experience. And notice how your mind gets confused by neutral experience. It's like we just don't want to notice it. We don't value neutral experience. So this just gives you a sense of how to, instead of how to get become inattentive, we know, we're beginning to understand, just listening to this, oh, then mindfulness is the path of not being confused by pleasant experience, so when we see that sort of magnetic pull to pleasant, then we practice, oh, it's just pleasant. We practice normalizing the pleasant experience. Oh, it's just ice cream. You know, it's just this. It will be here for a while, and then it will change. And then that allows the mind not to lose its spaciousness, its integrated way. Same with unpleasant. Oh, it's just pain. It's just pain. Oh, it's neutral. Oh, neutral is like this. Oh, I can include that. I don't need to disconnect from neutral, ordinary experience. So this is our homework for the next week. You know, just generally noticing when the mind disconnects, gets in a bubble of some sort. Oh, it's just too much. So whatever the... And get really interested in the particular dynamics. You know, you might notice three or four that really are standard for you. You use them all the time to disconnect. And then, once you get a sense of the different ways you disconnect, see if it's related, like whether the mind is using a pleasant experience 
as its vehicle to disconnect, an unpleasant experience as its vehicle to disconnect, or a neutral experience as its vehicle to disconnect. This would be really useful. And we can begin now. We have about 15 minutes. Be nice to hear from people. Any questions, of course, and also any comments you have from your own practice. Yeah, Nick. So, are you saying that when we get attentive with uh, an unpleasant experience, we distract us? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, what should we do that stay with and watch the unpleasant experience? Yeah, that, that's your sense. Yeah, sense it. And then the question you're, I think you're really asking is like, what view allows the mind to stay attentive, to stay mindful, instead of getting in a bubble, a reactive bubble? Like Bhante Gurdjieff calls this the grasping aversion bubble, you know, or syndrome, where we're just immediately in this pattern, and this pattern has its own integrity because it gets practiced so much. So on the one hand, we're on the lookout for, in, in the case of a painful experience, that aversive syndrome, you know, where we're in one fashion or another pushing it away, turning away, trying to destroy it. So we're noticing that impulse to react in that way, and we're remembering the possibility of just being relaxed with the unpleasant experience. You know, and then you can use even a phrase like, uh, is it okay? Can this be okay? This feels unworkable, but is it really unworkable? Let's see. Is it possible to be relaxed? Is it po possible to say yes to this? This will probably change. Is it possible to just relax with this? You know, and this is how we can, you know, like with the hangnail. And then once we have a more balanced relationship with the hangnail, then it's like just noticing other things. like. Because the mind's going to keep wanting to watch the hangnail. Like, is it really okay? And then, and one of the ways we prove it's okay is that we let the attention go somewhere else. Like, if it really were a saber-toothed tiger instead of a hangnail, it's like we wouldn't take our attention off of it. We'd really be like really locked into it. But what proves that it's okay is that we're willing to notice the sunshine touching the skin, you know, or hear this, or connect with that. That's how we know that we have a balanced relationship with the hangnail, or whatever it might be that's irritating us, is that there isn't this obsessive attention, that sort of revolving, thinking, reactive attention to the unpleasant object. Like the Buddha says in some of his teachings, we have this habit of keep going back. He said this to me. He said this to me. You know, we keep going back to the, exactly the image or the thought that is so disturbing. And then we react to it. And then we regenerate it. And then we react to it. It's like, from some distance, we say, why are we doing that? It's almost like we're just hitting ourselves with a hammer. Oh, yeah, that really hurts. Oh, yeah, that really hurts. I mean, that's really what we're doing when we keep returning to these bringing our attention to what's disturbing, as if we don't already know that. So one of the real um, powerful things with wisdom, when wisdom is present in the mind, it's like we realize that what we pay attention to is all about skill. We don't have to pay attention to any one particular thing. We should pay attention to what's skillful to pay attention to in this moment. 
But just because we have a hangout doesn't mean that's what we should pay attention to. We should pay attention to what leads to happiness in the, in the long term, in the deepest way. Yeah, say your name. Ellen. Ellen. So where does um, listening to your gut fall into what you're saying? There's that message of I think, in a way, to simplify your question about like whether you should, how can you follow your gut, whether you should follow your gut, maybe we should just say, we're, in one sense, we're always following our gut. Like Even when I'm totally wondering what you guys think I should do, you know, and taking my cue from you, it's my gut is saying, listen to them, don't listen to yourself, right? When we are kind of taking that in. So in one way or another, we're following our gut, and the key is not to second-guess that. The key is to see directly whether, in this instant, what the gut said, was it true? Was it useful? So this is why there's such an emphasis on the continuity of mindful awareness. Because what we're able to do is we're able to observe cause and effect. So our gut is saying, you know, leave that person. You know, this is not working. You'd be happier without this person in your life. You know, and so you do. But you don't, it's not like you're just paying attention in that one moment when your gut says, leave this person. Because in the next moment, your gut's saying, do you really want to leave this person? What's going to happen? You know? So the idea is just to keep tracking moment by moment by moment, both what's arising in terms of what you call the gut or intention, like the different intentions impulses that are arising, and then when we actually act on one of those impulses, then observing, knowing that, knowing what it leads to, what it sets in motion, what are the consequences of having that intention and of acting out that in intention, so that we're taking our stance in learning, not in being right. So we're not afraid of our gut being wrong, because we can learn just as much from our gut being wrong if we track the results as we can from our gut being right, right? And if we're taking the long view, which is about learning, then that's what's important, learning, not about being right. And boy, does that free us up. You know, to be able to live our day without having to be right, it's about learning. What can we learn today? Through our mistakes, through our successes. Because it gets integrated, you know, if we make a mistake and we're really there and really feeling directly how it didn't work, it gets integrated. We become a different human being, seeing clearly negative intention, and acting out that negative intention, and feeling the consequences of that negative intention being acted out. We're a different person if we see it clearly. Thanks, Alan. Yeah. Glenn. And um, the, the gut question kind of got this going in my, in my mind here. Um, a lot of times, listening to my gut, and I am trying to see where 
its messages are actually coming from. I find myself realizing that it's replaying a lot of what's happened before. It yeah. reacted to this thing that happened before, and it starts building up this idea that, okay, the same thing's going to happen this time. And I'm finding that yeah, I have to notice when it's doing that. And if I go through my life uh, listening to gut feelings that have memories of distrust and things like that, uh, it's not going to be very fulfilling and it's going to be hard to think and feel skillfully going forward. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying my experience is where I, I listen to my gut, but I also try to remember and, and think about where all those reactions are coming from and if those are actually coloring how I'm thinking and contributing to the delusion of what's going to happen next. Right. And I think your description is, is really good in terms of this work on d delusion because non-delusion is exactly what Glenn was talking about, which is it's almost like a tracing back from gross to more and more subtle and really getting at, what the, at the heart of what's happening, what's arising. And often the surface, and there's always sort of a surface, there's always something more subtle underneath whatever surface we're aware of. We should always assume there's something we're not yet awake to, not yet feeling or seeing. And we're really going to the subtle place of the heart being uneasy, heart being disturbed, the heart being afraid. And all of the more gross manifestations are generally what get our attention. But if we can just be interested in really connecting, really connecting in the depth of the experience. And it isn't about thinking our way back to the subtle place. It's about uh, receptivity and a more profound exposure to the moment. And really feeling that, connecting with that. And then what that does is it diffuses the whole pattern. Like if we're willing to feel that very subtle uneasiness or anxiety, then it diffuses, it kind of takes away how compelling the gut feeling to do this is, you know? And it allows for a lot of creativity, like how we're going to respond to the situation, because we're not compelled in the predictable way to react or to respond in a predictable way, because we diffused all of the predictable established patterns in the mind by our willingness to feel what we normally don't feel, see what we normally don't see. I tell you, if we could live our day connected with our deepest, most subtle pain, we'd be well on our way toward full and complete enlightenment. The real barrier to freedom is all of our defensive patterns to avoid feeling and knowing what's here. We're afraid of feeling what we feel. So this is, that again, that deal with the devil. We, we, we take up strategies to avoid feeling what we're feeling with dire consequences, unaware of the dire consequences. So the path of practice is to realize how freeing it is to feel what we feel, because it liberates us from all of our unproductive patterns. And it allows for a very creative, nimble, 
responsive, wise, and loving life. We'll pick it up again in the next two weeks. At least we'll spend at least three weeks on this subject. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Appreciate being here together. And inspired to live in a way that supports this profound clarity, simple clarity of mind and heart as a means of awakening, becoming part of the causes and conditions leading to wisdom and compassion and peace in our hearts and in the world. So may this be so. And thanks again, everyone, for coming. I'd like to just make the monthly reminder about Donna. Donna is the word for generosity. Most of you heard this word. So we call the table in the lobby where the donation bowl is, we call it the Donna table, the Donna bowl. A lot of people don't, what is that word, Donna? And we use it as one of the central practices here. So it's not just about getting money so we can pay the office staff or I can have support or the pay off the mortgage on the building. It's really what protects our practice and protects this community. So we don't charge for any of the programs. We don't have suggested donations. It's a practice of, and of course, this should be our practice all day long, not just here at Common Ground. But we start here, at least, or at least we're intentional here, that when you come, when you think about Common Ground, you think about that it's a free gift. These teachings are here because men and women in the past have done their practice shared what they've learned generation after generation, and it lands, it's available for us here. This building is here because of everything people did before us. All the people in this community who raised the money, who did the work, who volunteered the time, and have made this place what it is. And this is all tonight, at this moment, a free gift to us, no strings attached. We just want to feel how good that is. Like, there's nothing manipulative, manipulative about this. It's really meant to be a beautiful free gift, and we should receive it that way. And that's, a lot, that's not easy for us. I know for me personally, it is not easy to receive gifts freely. I always want to be slightly ahead. Do you notice that feeling? And even in relationships, like if someone's really kind to me, I want to be a little bit more kind to them than they are to me, because I don't like the feeling of being out of balance. But that's fear. I mean, I'm really learning, like, I've got to, I have to receive 100% freely without worrying if I'm keeping up. Because it's not fair. So when you notice, like, you're doing this math in your mind, see if you can just, like, really appreciate this, regardless of whether you've given in the last months or whether you volunteered your time or whether you're doing anything generous anywhere in your life. Still, it's really okay when you receive a gift, even if you're stingy, you should really appreciate the gifts you receive. <laughs> no, really, that's the practice. Because, you know, if you fully receive a gift, you're going to feel good. And you know what we do when we feel good? We start giving back naturally. We smile at the next person we see. We pick up trash. We put money in a donation bowl. We volunteer to do things. We just do it because it feels good. So that's the other half of the practice, is just to notice how good it feels when we do beautiful things. Casey's sitting up front. I don't know if some of you, I know a lot, John was there, a bunch of you were 
there over the weekend helping build the fence. There's maybe 15 or more Julian people involved in that project all day Friday, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. But, you know, I observed from a distance mostly, and it was like this contact high. Just I felt like their giving was so joyful. No strings attached. They were just having a good time. But it was hard work, and they put in a lot of hours. The joy of giving. So the joy of giving and the joy of receiving. And just exploring this, using common ground as sort of a training ground of how to set loose this joy of giving and receiving and then just take it everywhere in our lives. And it really works. I mean, Common Ground is sort of relatively small community. We've spent well over $800,000 on this building and the grounds, besides all the free labor from our volunteers. And, you know, I have a comfortable living, and we have paid staff, and we have money in the bank. and So it works, this kind of cycle of giving and receiving. And if you ever have more questions, just see me. You can talk to Julian, who's our program host tonight and one of the leaders here, and he has some announcements for us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.